Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. It feels like a very long time. It has been. Thank you for the questions that came in. And yeah, essentially, I've been doing the book club for a year now. And I thought maybe, maybe it'd be worth, you know, I I do have a book, it is based on the brain. So maybe it'd be worth going through some of the things about the book or about the writing process for you guys. So I'm recording this to put it up as a podcast so everything is in place and really I guess in a different light from how I usually do the book clubs where I talk a lot about theory and the psychology because this is my book it already feels a little bit narcissistic so I I won't kind of drone on about the different chapters unless you want me to I'm very happy just to do this mostly as a QA and a to answer your questions and just a little bit of a discussion and a chat for you so maybe I will kick off with the questions that have already come in and actually since in case because sometimes people arrive who haven't read the book so it is this one it is my book how to build a healthy brain and the idea behind it is obviously essentially I have dedicated my life to brain health mental health and helping people to helping people to understand their brains better and my fundamental belief is that the better you understand yourself, the more able you are to tolerate when things aren't going well, but also to work preventatively to help protect yourself. And as I say in the book, build resilience into the system. My frustration with mental health is that it's always seen as the area of last resort. So we think preventatively when we think about physical health, right? And I say in the book that you brush your teeth, not because you've already got holes in your teeth, you brush your teeth to prevent getting holes in your teeth. We, you know, try to eat well and exercise to reduce our risk of heart disease. We we're told to stop smoking to reduce our risk of of lung cancer and things like that. But we don't apply the principle of prevention to mental health. When it comes to mental health, consistently across the board, we wait for something to go wrong first, right? So we don't think, oh, how do we help people to build up you know preventative tools against depression or anxiety which are some of the leading causes of disability around the world we say wait until you have your first anxiety attack your first panic attack or your first um, episode of depression then come and see us and then we're going to try and get you back to baseline and I think it's an artifact of how stigmatized but also kind of dismissed mental health conditions are but also how we see them as not related to the body right so we do prevention for physical health concerns because we say well the body is a physical organ and we can affect it with physical interventions be they nutritional or you know physical exercise and things like that but we don't apply the same principle to the brain or to the mind we assume for some reason that the mind is completely divorced from the body that it's somewhere it kind of floats above you it's this kind of ethereal thing and we don't assume that we can intervene or apply those same principles of prevention to mental health and the thing I keep banging on about is that your brain is a physical organ and we, un- we, we when something goes wrong with a physical organ you can see it through the symptoms right so if you have problems with your heart 
the way that a doctor will look for underlying disease is to check the functions of your heart. They'll test your blood pressure. They will maybe do an echocardiogram and look at the physical structure of your heart. They may look at the the electrical signals that your 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 heart is is producing and they will look at things like your breathlessness you know the functions of your heart will give an indication of what's going wrong and all the kind of help that your heart needs and essentially we should be doing that with the brain it's just that the functions of the brain are mood emotion attention wakefulness fatigue concentration so we should be seeing these issues we should be seeing these functions as symptoms of something going on in the brain and the brain needing perhaps a little bit more attention so that's my underlying principle and what I talk about in the book is just the many ways and and the point is that there's a huge literature on this the many ways that we can physically and, and in lifestyle ways intervene to help you know not give you you know magic bullets there's no massive promises but we have a very robust clinical literature on the things that you can do that have been shown to help reduce your risk of our common mental health disorders, anxiety and depression, but also things like Alzheimer's disease, which is in the UK and and outside of coronavirus times, is the leading cause of death in the UK. So that's the reason I wrote the book, because I feel like the brain, even though it's the most important organ in the body, is also the most neglected when we think about health. So that's why I wrote the book. Somebody said, who should read the book? Obviously, I'm massively biased, but I think I say, you know, the book is for anyone with a brain that they want to protect. So it's really, I'd like to think of it as a kind of Bible for brain health. I've tried to be as comprehensive as possible. And so I cover, as well as giving you a very quick kind of overview of the brain and and types of brain cells, which you can completely ignore. You don't have to read those chapters at all. But, you know, sometimes it's helpful just to have, you know, the way that you might have a model of the body just so you can see which organs connect to where. And it just helps you to kind of visualize what might be going on when you've got a physiological health symptom. I want to do the same for the brain. So I'll just give you a quick overview of the brain. The same thing that I do in the videos here, you know, talk a little bit about the prefrontal cortex and the part that talks about reason and planning and goal orientated tasks. And then I talk about the limbic system, which is about emotion. I talk about the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems, the ones that are about relaxation and digestion and then your and your stress response. So just to give you a kind of working overview. And then I talk about what I call the two major players, which are the two processes of inflammation, which is basically the thing we want to reduce as much as possible in the ways that we can. And there are things that we can't, in, you know, we can't completely control it, but there are things that we know we can do to help reduce our kind of levels of this inflammatory immune response. And neurogenesis, which is building new brain cells or more connections between the brain because you can build your brain that's the underlying principle in the book is you can build your brain you can make it bigger you can grow your brain volume and that that's really important because as you age your brain starts to shrink by about one or two percent per year from depending on how healthy you are but from around your late 40s Um, and that I'm slightly off tangent here I'll go back to what I cover but that is considered normal brain aging it's considered normal that your brain shrinks as you get older and that kind of age-related brain shrinkage is uh, linked to what we consider the normal problems of brain function as you get older right a little bit you know grandma's a bit forgetful or you're not so good following a conversation or you know you're, you're just a bit more forgetful that's considered normal I don't consider it normal and and what we know is that people who invest in lifestyle factors that can increase brain volume are less likely to get this age-related brain shrinkage but even more important and which I, I do mention in the book in trials where they've taken people, older people who already have risk factors for dementia, so something called mild cognitive impairment, which isn't necessarily a precursor to dementia, but it's 
it's that age-related forgetfulness and, and problems with cognition. So they took a big group of people, it's called the Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study, and improved their nutrition, got them doing a little bit of exercise, and improved their social relationships. So all things that I mentioned in the book, and then some. And what they saw was that they were able to halt, and in some cases, reverse that age-related decline in brain function. And again, so this is stuff that I want people to know. I feel like this is stuff that you should know. If your brain is going to shrink, <laughs> and I would much rather my brain didn't shrink, and there are things that I could do about it, I'd want to know that. And, and so my frustration is that even though depression is one of the leading causes of disability around the world, even though dementia is a leading cause of death in the UK, even though it's uh, Alzheimer's is one of the leading causes of disability across Europe and, and the West, there isn't, at least in the UK, a public health campaign for the brain, right? And when I've done talks about this, I'll go on, on Public Health England, which if you're not in the UK, is our, our national policy board for health campaigns for the public, right? So it's the smoking cessation programs. They're the ones that are putting out all the posters about washing your hands to reduce the risk of coronavirus. And there are no public health campaigns for the brain. There was, there was one that was about, it was an app to help you track signs of fatigue, you know, kind of a very kind of entry level self-care, but nothing to help people understand that we have this really robust science on age related brain decline and lifestyle interventions that can help reduce it. So <laughs> that's why I wrote the book. I was going to explain what I cover. And so what I talk about after giving you a little bit of an overview of, uh, of your beautiful brain, the most complex structure in the universe the most complex structure in the universe is in your head <laughs> that's so amazing I love that so I talk about yeah uh, neurogenesis and inflammation the effects of stress and how you can recognize both the physical and psychological symptoms of stress because people tend to think of stress as only in their heads or you know I just feel a bit stressed I feel a bit tense but stress is a full body experience experience it affects every single system in the body and so it's really important that you recognize the physical symptoms of stress so that you can address them as soon as possible so I help you to I, I literally list them for you then we talk about sleep how to find the right bedtime for you and, and that's about tracking your wakefulness and your levels of fatigue through the day so that you know when you're more likely to get off to a restful night's sleep and, and lots of other stuff around sleep. Um, a big old chapter on nutrition. And the chapter on nutrition is so big that when I sent it to the editor, they literally came back and went, mm, we're going to have to cut this down a bit. And I was like, hmm, just because partly it's, the, it's, it's also the part that people are most interested in, but because there's just so much to say, both in terms of foods that uh, are supportive and things that you might want to consider eating less of. So a big fat chapter on, on nutrition. Then I talk about fasting because A, it's very, very popular. But also, side note, I've done a master's on the influence um, of fasting on the brain. So it was just something that I was also interested in. How exercise protects the brain and exercise is one of the most robust interventions for literally building a bigger brain people who exercise regularly have bigger brain volume than than people who don't exercise as much and there's lots of really lovely science around there how you can use your breath and one of the recommendations that I put in the back of the book because I, I also give you a list of very easy kind of five minute interventions that you can use and one of them is singing a power ballad in the shower um, and that's about activating, you'll know if you read the book, the vagus nerve and 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 helping you to really turn on that anti-inflammatory aspect part of your your nervous system. And you can do that with singing. And so, you know, the interventions aren't difficult or complex and hopefully some of them are fun. Understanding your emotions, you guys, if you've been around here for more than five minutes, you know that I always tell you to take your emotions seriously. And that's because emotions have a physiological side. They are they, they are biomarkers for certain experiences. We know that when you suppress your emotions, uh, you have greater experience or activation in your pain receptors and you have less um, energy reserve. You get fatigued more quickly when you suppress your emotions. So managing your emotions, understanding your emotions, and doing that in order to help protect your relationships is super important to your overall brain health. So I, I, in fact, 
it's probably the chapter that I I'm I'm glad I'm most glad is in the book because I think when in other books that talk about brain health they don't talk about emotions emotions always get sidelined as some sort of incidental thing and I think emotions are super duper important then other things like sauna usage and heat exposure how brushing your teeth can be a really important way to help protect your brain health impact of social media and technology taking care of your money because money is one of the main sources of stress for a lot of people, how to get better at problem solving, understanding emotionally invalidating environments and how you can prevent them, all of that sort of stuff. So that's what I cover. So one of the questions that came in is, you know, was basically, do you need a degree to read the book? I hope not. I would, I I probably don't have an objective view of that. And that would be down to, I know some of you in the in the comments have read the book so you would be in a better position to say whether you need quite a high level of understanding to be able to understand it and to get something out of it I hope not my intention and my aim when I was writing it was to write something that was comprehensive and and presented you with the science because I I believe very much in upskilling people giving people the skills to understand the information that's there for them without without being condescending, without dumbing down. And so I, I want it to feel approachable, but also like I want, to, I want to respect your intelligence at the same time. So hopefully you don't feel like you'll need a degree um, in, in biology to be able to understand it. But I think others will be in a better position to, to answer that question. One of the other questions that came in that a couple of people asked was is it ever too late so I definitely want to give time to this question so is it ever too late to help improve your brain health and what the evidence says is is basically no up until the point when someone is diagnosed with moderate to severe dementia there is benefit to the things that I talk about in the book, right? So what the evidence tells us is that by the time someone's cognitive health has declined to the point of moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, for example, then these interventions may not be quite as effective. You know, that the disease has taken hold sufficiently that any benefits you're going to be getting are going to be minimal. But like I said, in in the finished study, that even people who had mild cognitive impairment and who were at higher risk, whether that's genetically or because of their lifestyle, so people who were already at higher risk for getting a diagnosis of dementia, when they put them on the study and and introduced them to the interventions, they were able to reduce the risk or halt their cognitive decline. So, and these were people who were already older, right? So it wasn't that we were just talking about people like 25 year olds. These were people already in their 40s, 50s, 60s and above. So no, as far as I'm concerned, if you haven't got a diagnosis of cognitive decline, then it's not too late. And that's, and that's the point because the whole problem with trying to get people interested in brain health and because with the body, if I was up here trying to get you to take care of your physical health, I could make you promises of visible results, right? I might say, oh, your skin will be clearer or your eyes will sparkle or you'll lose weight or, you know, whatever it would be. I can make you short term promises that you'll be able to see in, I don't know, I guess most of those plans are like eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks. And you'd be able to look at that, those results and be like, oh, fantastic. I'm getting results. All my hard work is paying off. And so it's much easier to get people engaged and excited about making changes for physical health, although the brain is a physical organ. It's just, you know, the traditional separation we make. And it's much harder to get people on board with the brain because, A, you can't see it. You know, I'm not going to be able to take a selfie and upload my brain gains. Right. But B, really, with your brain, we are playing the long game. Right. We are thinking, I want to be able to remember I watched the notebook for the first time (laughs) last week you somebody should warn me about that movie because I was 
absolutely in pieces. But it's about that. It's about being able to get to your later years and live a full and engaged life, to be able to remember your friendships and and your partnerships, remember your children, all of that sort of stuff. And so it's really about playing the long game. And it's not about quick fixes. It's not about instant results. It's not about uploading your stats to Instagram. It's really about, for me, being interested in your brain is about really investing in yourself it's really about saying I take my my quality of life really seriously that I'm willing to invest now for two or three decades you know to see the benefit in a few decades time so no it's never too late it's better to start early I call there's a principle called cognitive reserve and I'll tell you about it so cognitive reserve was Um, coined in um, the late 80s, there were a group of researchers who were studying um, some older people in a nursing home, a Jewish nursing home in New York. And they were specifically looking at Alzheimer's disease. Um, Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. So dementia is a group of syndromes that lead to damage in the brain, kind of damage to your, your brain cells. And Alzheimer's is the most common one. And usually with Alzheimer's disease, what you see is a very close correlation to the amount of damage you see in the brain. So you can only say someone has Alzheimer's disease at post-mortem when you look at their brain and you look at the the characteristic signs of damage. There are a few kind of clear indicators that something is Alzheimer's disease. Usually there's a very, very good correlation between the amount of damage you see in the brain and the amount of impairment, the symptoms a person had while they were alive, right? There's usually, they usually match quite well. So people who have less severe Alzheimer's and then die have less damage in their brains. People who are very severely impaired will have more damage in their brains. That was the usual story that they'd seen forever and ever, amen. But what they found, what they saw in, in this group of people was that there were some people, some of the older residents who died who, when they looked at their brain, so when they were, you know, you know, alive and in the study, they were, you know, sharp, they were playing games, they were remembering, telling stories from decades ago, absolutely fine. But when they looked at their brains, actually, these people had very clear signs of quite severe damage. So what should have happened is that they should have been quite impaired while they were alive. So there's this kind of weird anomaly. And they think to themselves, well, what's going on, right? And then what they do is to weigh the brains and they find that these people who had no symptoms or minimal symptoms while they're alive, but quite severe damage to their brains actually had heavier brains. And they're like, huh. So what's the deal? Were these people born with heavier brains? Unlikely, you know, that there was a special group of people with giant craniums when they were born. And, and what they decided and what has now been built upon in the intervening decades is that these people throughout their lives were building cognitive reserves. They were, they were doing the things essentially in the book that helped to build extra brain capacity. And that's why I call it the, the pension plan for the brain, because the earlier you start to build this extra reserve, this, this pot, then the more you'll have to draw on should you come down with disease later in life and and what the brain is able to do if you have this extra capacity is to kind of rewire it's it's like it's like if you're if you consider the brain to be a network of motorways or just the streets in, in say a town and then there's a big block maybe a pothole opens in the middle of one junction then if you've got this cognitive reserve then your brain is able to put in diversions and you're able to still get to your destination through a different route. And so the idea is that the more reserve you have, the more alternative you routes to still get you to that destination. And that destination might be, you know, holding on to your memory or being able to engage in conversations. And so, yeah, so the earlier you start and the more you put in as you go along, the, and, and again, no promises, no, nothing is gonna be 100% successful, but all of the evidence tells us that the more likely you are to have a better chance of reducing your risk of of being diagnosed with one of these kind of life destroying illnesses. All right, I'm going to get back to your question because I know you guys have been asking some things. 
can the brain cells undergo mitosis reproduction or is the cells threshold set at birth so no so it used to be under it used to be thought that you were basically born with all the brain cells that you would ever have and look after them now don't bash your head too much because it was just going to be a decline from here on out but actually what's been demonstrated mostly in, in, in rat studies but we've also seen evidence of it in animal in, in humans is what's called adult neurogenesis so adult neuro nerve cell genesis creation and in particular um, it doesn't happen in all parts of the brain but it happens in particular in the um the nerve in the, in the nose but in the hippocampus as well and the hippocampus so adult hippocampal neurogenesis is the hippocampus is the part of the brain most associated with memory. And so it's the area of the brain which is most damaged in Alzheimer's disease. And so really, adult hippocampal neurogenesis is the focus largely of the book as well, you know, taking care of your overall brain health. But the more that you can build up that extra capacity in the hippocampus, then the, the better your odds are of reducing your risk of severe disease as you get older. So adult new brain cells are, are a thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why do you think there is not a public health campaign? I think that... I think there are lots of reasons. I think mental health is still considered secondary to physical health. And again, I think that's still a throwback to the idea that the mind is separate from the brain, right? That the mind is almost like spirit. And there's, you know, there's nothing we can do if your spirits are down. You know, we used to think about mental health as spiritual possessions or, or you know, devilish uh, d devils and demons, right? And there's still these kind of weird throwbacks where, Anything involving the brain or the mind is considered odd, confusing, difficult, and long term. So I think it never really got the priority that it deserved. I think, secondly, it's, it's really, really long term. And unfortunately, we don't have... And, and, and it doesn't make sense because the, the care costs of dementia are more than the care costs of cancer and heart disease combined. So actually, it's costing the government more than these other diseases that get many more campaigns, right? You'll see many more campaigns for cancer than you will for Alzheimer's disease. Maybe they're considered too frightening. Maybe no one wants to think about Alzheimer's disease. You know, I, I can see that, that it's, it's very frightening. But also because a lot of the, when we're thinking about dementia, in particular, they don't happen for a very, very long time. And we have a kind of a social neglect of older people. And we also don't think about ourselves as older people. You know, we live in the now, we want to focus on now, and we don't want to think about ourselves as older. Um, in the book, I talk about some of the cognitive biases that get in the way of people taking care of their brains. And one of them is it's called delay discounting, which is 
that you value things that are off in the future much less than you value the things that are, are nearby. So if I were to say to you, hey, I've got some money to give you. I can either give you uh, £10 in two weeks or I can give you a fiver now. Most people would take the fiver because we seem to value the things that are up close much more than we value the things that are further off. It's irrational because you would be better off waiting for the tenor, but we value the things that we can have immediately. And so we don't value our future brain health as much as we value having abs now. So it's, I think it's a mixture of things. Okay, so we've got Rachel says, you do not need a degree. <laughs> um, will the book be translated into other languages? Would love to recommend it to my German speaking brains. Yeah, I think the, because all of the translation rights and conversations happen at the publishers. I know that those discussions are in hand. I know that the, so the first foreign, pr foreign prints are going to be uh, US and Canada in March. And then I assume others will come from there. So we have, have got recommend. We have had those conversations. I don't know just as yet when. I would very, obviously, I would very much like it to be translated because, I, as I said, I think it's for everybody with a brain. So, <laughs> all right. Okay, good. So apparently you don't need a degree. People say it's accessible. So that is a delight. Thank you so much. Okay, more conversational than overwhelming. Thank you. All right. In neurogenesis, can brain cells undergo mitosis reproduction? Oh, the cell threshold. I'm not sure, actually. No, we see, we see, we see the upregulation of brain cells from stem cells. So it's actually production from what's called, I think, like a pleiotropic stem cells. So stem cells that can form many other different types of cells. So certainly there are new cells formed by, from stem cells, um, in the hippocampus. Uh, research on the brain is too hard. I know from experience that because we're playing the long game, it takes decades for a problem to manifest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Can people with generalized anxiety disorder experience memory loss? So, uh, you know, obviously everyone would need to meet with, they would need to be assessed. But in terms of the mechanism, generalized anxiety disorder is associated, of course, with an increased expression of stress hormones, in particular, the glucocorticoids. And, you know, so when you feel anxious, you've, you have that big release of stress hormones. We know that the hippocampus, so this area of the brain, which is really associated with memory, has lots of receptors for glucocorticoids. And that's important. And the reason for that is that when you're, as far as your body is concerned, we're only stressed or frightened when there's a legitimate threat, right? So when, you know, our, our bodies are really about 50,000 years old, right? And so your brain thinks that if something is frightening, it must be something massively life-threatening is about to happen right now. You know, you're going to get eaten by a lion or something like that. And if that's the case, your brain wants you to remember how you escaped that life-threatening event. And so that's why your hippocampus has all of these receptors for these stress hormones. And it's why you remember those moments of kind of I don't know if you've ever almost been hit by a car or if you've been in an accident you somehow have a really intense vivid memory of, of those moments they get kind of really enforced and encoded in the brain and that's partly because of this influx of glucocorticoids these stress hormones and the whole point of that is that your brain says we need to remember how you escaped this in case it happens again yeah. So it's like it's really a safety mechanism. We need to remember this so that if you survive, you'll be able to use your learning from this to make sure you escape it if it ever happens again. The problem is if you have either chronic stress. So if you're constantly flooding your body with those stress hormones and we can think of generalized anxiety as a form of chronic stress then you can start to overwhelm those receptors. You know, they're, 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 they expect to only be used rarely and for brief periods of time. But if you have chronic stress, chronic trauma, um, chronic anxiety, then you're kind of constantly flooding them. And over time, if it goes on for a very long time, then at least theoretically, you can get damage um, to the hippocampus or impairment in the hippocampus, which can damage the memory and that's also one of the reasons that we see memory problems associated with depression because depression can be seen as a form of chronic stress as well yeah all right if you could only pick one intervention from your book to adopt 
what should it be? I would probably have to go with the evident. Ugh, ooh. <laughs> Um, I was going to say exercise and then I thought sleep. So sleep, I'm going to assume that you don't have a sleep, have a choice because everyone has to sleep. So I'm going to take sleep as a freebie and then say exercise as the, as the optional one, because exercise is the one that has the most robust effect on switching on the chemicals that help to build those new brain cell connections. And and, and and you can sometimes it can increase those chemicals almost 300 times in your blood. So it's probably the it's the, certainly the most robust research literature. And it's yeah, I would probably go with exercise. Um, and that would be a broad range of exercise. So both aerobic resistance, but also uh, what we considered mind body exercises like yoga. They would probably be my go to's. So maybe an obvious question, but can children experience stress? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, in the classic endocrine literature, so hormone literature, there's something called, it's changed its name, I think it's called psychosocial dwarfism. And essentially, it's the idea that chronic stress can stunt growth. And we see, if you, I think if you remember, and I think I mentioned this a while ago, with the, with the Romanian orphanages, we saw lots of kind of stunted growth in those children because they were chronically stressed and essentially what happens again is this idea that your stress response is adapted it evolved for brief and rare activation and what it does what happens when you get stressed because it's such an energetically demanding response right you have this influx of hormones you either need to get up and go off and run somewhere or you need to stand still and fight or you need to find an escape route. It's so energetically demanding that your body basically shuts down everything else in the meantime. It shuts down your gut and digestion, which is why IBS is so closely associated with stress. It shuts down your reproduction. So it's why you don't feel particularly sexy when you're very stressed. You know, you don't have very much of a libido, but it's also why your fertility can be impaired when you're stressed. But it also shuts down growth. Right. Because and basically it turns off growth hormone because you don't you know what you can grow later once you've escaped the stress. And so what happens with children who have experienced these chronic periods of stress is that they have this chronic turning off of growth hormone um, and, and it gets expressed in these, you know, in reductions in, in growth. So, yes, absolutely. Children can experience stress. And again, it's one of the reasons, as I say, stress is a total body experience and it certainly affects the brain. It's one of the reasons that we should always do whatever we can to protect children and, and support them and, and make sure that their lives are as, as peaceful as possible so that they can get that growth trajectory going anything about OCD and there isn't I don't talk about specific no I don't really I talk about depression I talk about anxiety I talk about dementia I don't talk about any other specific psychological diagnosis in the book so the brain doctor says I think the reason there is no public health campaign is that the government plan for short to medium term and brain health takes years a bit like climate change yeah I I think it's exactly that I think um, I have this particular frustration in terms of in prison policy so I used to work in prison and so I'm interested in in prison policy and and sentencing policy and the idea that every time an election rolls around sentences get longer and harsher even though we know that makes things worse in the long term it satisfies a short-term appeal to the public and that and that governments are just interested in short-term appeals so yeah it's very annoying um and and again it's kind of the reason that I wrote the book is that I thought at least you know if if I can offer nothing else to the world I want this information to be out there and available for people until such a time as we get an organized government who will come in and do it (laughs) all right um what are my daily rituals for brain health. Any recommendations for, for preventing cognitive decline earlier on to avoid getting these diseases? Um, and someone else asked me that. Or someone asked me, is there anything that I find difficult to adhere to? So it's probably unsurprising to you that I basically, I basically <laughs> just a very goody two shoes with my brain. Um, and I basically do everything in the book. So 
uh, well, I guess something that I might find difficult to adhere to is that on nights like this, I will get home quite late and I will get to bed quite late, which is not ideal. You know, your body likes a nice, consistent bedtime and this will kind of knock that sideways for a day or so. But I, you know, I think these things are worth it. Anything else that I find difficult to adhere to? Sometimes uh, if I get very busy, I can get very head down and be rubbish at getting back to friends I try to get better at that and I'm trying to be better at that but I but that's again that's kind of part of the stress response which is when when you're stressed when you're under pressure when you've got a deadline looming everything narrows to that point and everything else outside kind of goes a bit blurry so if, if I'm under pressure that can be something that happens daily rituals I I drink a lot of tea if you can consider that a ritual I am a big tea drinker and lots of the, res- the research is very kind to you on that you can basically drink as much tea as you like and it's all very uh, helpful for your brain try to get some movement in I do try and get out for walks my job is basically sitting down and thinking with you know occasionally frowning hopefully I do a bit more than that but you know I I have to remind myself to get up and, and go for walks and get a bit of movement in and walking is so so good for you it's basically the form of movement that your body is most adapted for and again it's one of the things I talk about when we talk about movement it doesn't have to be extreme we're not talking about running marathons or doing hip exercises walking has so many profound benefits and that there were reductions in cognitive impairment you know people had healthier brains with just three 30 minute sessions of walking a week so it's really important yeah I think and I guess other most of most of my rituals are food (laughs) so I will you know I try to I eat a lot of fiber I eat a fair amount of fermented foods I guess I try oh one thing that's probably worth saying is I do not work and eat and I've become stricter with that as I've gotten older so I won't be checking emails or scrolling through my phone when I'm eating I I, I might be watching tv but it will be something very gentle it'll be something like a comedy or something light-hearted I'm not going to be sitting down watching a horror movie and eating and that's because of that difference in the nervous systems that you have a, a, a fight or flight system and a rest and digest system and they work like a seesaw one is activated and one is deactivated and so I cannot be trying to eat and properly digest my food if I'm also kind of arousing my my fight or flight response so I try to be very careful about not checking emails or trying or eating on the fly and just making time to to eat properly any recommendations for preventing cognitive decline the whole list the whole book (laughs) so uh, everything in the book any advice on improving conversational skills? I get worse at this through a period of extended stress. Um, and, and as I say, I think sometimes that's part of a natural response. It depends on what you mean by, by conversational skills. You know, is it about approaching people? Do you find it difficult to kind of spark up a conversation, which might be about working on anxieties about maybe feeling silly or not knowing the right thing to say? Often it's worth remembering that everybody feels a bit socially anxious and nobody's very good at it. Or is it about maintaining conversations? I think often it's it's sometimes people try to pretend they're not nervous or to pretend that they're good at something. And sometimes if you just take the pressure of yourself to pretend you'll just feel much more relaxed about it so if you kind of go in without any expectations of yourself then that can help I have a whole section in the book on having difficult conversations and I have a personal theory well actually not even a theory I asked you guys this is about 18 months ago now I said is there a conversation out there uh, with someone that you need to have but you're avoiding because it's awkward and over 95% of people said yes. And the thing is about awkward conversations that they're often the most important conversations we could have, whether that's telling a friend that we feel hurt or let down by them, or whether it's telling a parent to back off and treat us like adults, or whether it's telling someone that we like them, telling a, having a conversation with a partner about sex. So many of the things that you want in life you know, that would enhance your life, enrich your life, reduce your stress, are on the other side of a difficult conversation. And so the idea that so many of you were avoiding these difficult conversations really got to me. And so what I have in here, I don't even know if I can remember what page it's on, um, but I have a 10-step guide to having difficult conversations. I basically hold your hand through it. And a lot of that is based on on clinical work, because obviously, in, in therapy, a lot of what we do is helping people 
kind of stand up for themselves, advocate for themselves, ask for things for themselves, stop keeping secrets, all of that sort of stuff. And so I've had lots of practice helping people have difficult but important conversations. So in terms of that, I literally have a step by step guide for you there. All right. It's very hard to get a good night's sleep with a partner who snores and twitches in his sleep. Yes. And actually, interestingly, when people go into sleep clinics, they will often report, so subjectively, they will say, oh, no, 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 I always sleep better in, in the same bed with my partner. You know, it's always, I just, it's better. But actually, objectively, when you study them, they sleep better separately. And I think lots of people underestimate how much a partner's snoring or movements impair their own sleep. I guess the decision is about, you know, whether you'd want to sleep separately for the sake of good night's sleep or whether there are things, I know that, you know, sometimes you can get kind of nasal dilators that can help reduce snoring or, you know, those interventions to address the snoring or the movement with its like restless leg syndrome or something like that, then that can be really helpful. But yeah, I think, I think we often underestimate the impact of our partner's movements or noises on the quality of our sleep. Oh, okay. So that Lisa was saying, Lisa, who was saying it's difficult to get a good night's sleep with uh, a noisy or twitchy person. Is it a good solution to take daytime naps? It can be. I mean, there, there, there's a bit of conjecture in the literature. So some people's and, and some and particularly sometimes evolutionary psychologists believe that we are kind of biphasic sleepers. So we, we take a couple of chunks of sleep. So we might have a longer overnight sleep and then you know, a nap in the afternoon kind of siesta style in Southern Europe, whereas others say that, no, we're we're basically monophasic sleepers. We, we need a good night's sleep. It's probably likely to be a bit of either depending on who you are. If daytime naps help you, then that's probably OK. But if you're finding that you're still sleepy, then you might want to have a look at the sleeping arrangements and whether that's, you know, trying to get your partner to try um, maybe a nasal dilator or going to a doctor and checking out something if it's sleep apnea or something like that doing that because you know things like sleep apnea are, are kind of harmful to the individual as well as disturbing the sleep of the partner so you might want to do that okay I am aware that we are rapidly running out of time let's see if there's anything else someone says I highly recommend the film Still Alice which shows the devastating effects of early onset Alzheimer's on a 40 something year old woman. I don't know if I could cope, to be honest. Thank you, Helen. Um, thank you very much. I think many people are living with chronic stress without realizing how damaging it is. Rather, we assume we're just getting on with life. 20 surgeons, I think you are absolutely right. One of the things that often happens is that people will come in and not realize the level of stress that they're they're living at they're chronically kind of wired and then also caffeinated which can kind of turn switch on the anxiety as well but I, I guess I always also want to mention the impact for introverts living in a very extrovert world and I, I think I think about this because I've certainly seen it a couple of times where you've had someone who is a um like a natural introvert right they're just it's just their, their makeup their nature it's not shyness it's not insecurity it's not social anxiety they're just an introvert but they're in a very forward focused people facing maybe very aggressive environment work environment the kind of what you know people slapping each other on the backs and too many meetings all in a row and you're constantly with other people and introverts classically need time away from people to to recharge and I will see those people because they will have IBS and so there are this constant state of having to kind of almost put a shield on in order to just go to work and be in this very extrovert dominated environment so I think that's something I would flag that if there are any introverts out there just to be aware of and if you can't do anything about the environment then making sure you're putting all the other things in place regarding you know managing stress reducing stress switching off routines to help calm the body and calm the mind to help to counter the likelihood that you're really going to be a much more much more prone to stress activation than an extrovert who is just kind of built for those environments a bit a bit more so yeah I absolutely agree do you have plans to write another book 
<laughs> we can all have plans. It's about whether they come to anything. Um, I would love to. If I did another book, I would want it to be on food and psychology. But my guess is that that depends on how successful this one is. I don't have another book deal. I haven't got another book secretly in the works. So I guess it would just depend on how well this book did. <laughs> See whether a publishing company would take another chance for me. Um, but I would love to. That would be, uh, if I got the chance to do a second book, I would want to do one on, on food and psychology because that's my bag. I made the decision because I, I could have put that proposal forward to a, a publisher, but I made the decision that if I could only write one book, and I, I do not take for granted at all that I got the opportunity to write one book. I know that's not anything that everyone can is lucky enough to do. And so I said, if I only get the chance to write one book, this is the book that I would want to exist because I think it's the one that is an area of the of the of health that is most neglected, and it's something that people actually can do to help themselves. So that was the decision I made. But with any luck, I would I'd love to do a second one. Okay. Someone says, what type of tea? All types of tea are, are considered great. So particularly black tea and green tea, but I always throw some white tea in as well, just to mix it up. What about cycling? Yes, all kinds of movement. So any time that you are moving your body through space, you are helping your brain. Are there plans for translating the book into other languages? I think there are discussions, but I haven't heard of any specific dates. Do you wear a Fitbit or Garmin to track your food or steps or distance at all? Absolutely not. No, never. No, thank you very much. The awkward conversation section is so good and thorough. Thank you. I'm glad. Apologies if this was already asked. How can we protect our brains from being in constant fight or flight mode during Corona crisis? I have done a whole series called flattening the anxiety curve in my IGTV. So I would direct you that away will this be on IGTV I came late yes okay all right Whew. is Fitbit bad sorry I know I was very didactic about that I believe very much personally in self-possession which I've talked about before which is the idea that basically I don't like being told what to do and I, I the idea of being answerable to an algorithm I find abhorrent um, and I think what that does is that it encourages you to have an external locus of control and motivation that you're doing it to satisfy something outside of you which personally for me does not work all right we are at 59 minutes and something so I'm going to wrap it up there I will leave this up so it will be available and I've recorded the the audio so it will be a podcast thank you very much for your time and your questions I hope you found this helpful take care of your brains 